the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, June 1st, 1936. I'm Sally Helm. The United States Supreme Court is about to announce its last decision of the term. And President Roosevelt is watching closely, probably gritting his teeth. Because if recent decisions are any guide, he's not about to get good news. And good news for Roosevelt would be simple. He just wants the court to stop messing with his landmark legislation, a series of laws that he's calling the New Deal. These are not modest reforms. Three years ago, soon after Roosevelt entered the White House, he began proposing to expand the size and scope of the federal government. He introduced laws to protect workers, laws to stabilize the banking industry and make it easier for people to get loans, and biggest of all, the Social Security Act to make sure people had enough money to retire with dignity. Congress has passed these laws, but the Supreme Court has repeatedly struck them down. And today's decision is another crucial test for the New Deal. It's a case about a laundromat in Brooklyn where the owner refused to follow a New York state law guaranteeing women a minimum wage. That was a popular reform, especially among workers. But today, the decision comes down. Unconstitutional. The next day, the New York Daily News runs an angry editorial. We have come to an impasse as regards social welfare legislation. We are paralyzed by a ruling of five old men. The five-member majority on the nine-man Supreme Court. That same day, President Roosevelt holds a press conference. A reporter asks him how he'll ever be able to make the New Deal happen, quote, within the existing framework of the Constitution. It's a challenging question, and it boils down to this. Is the New Deal dead, or will you, President Roosevelt, do something drastic to revive it? Today, something drastic. How did President Franklin Delano Roosevelt take on the Supreme Court? And how did the Supreme Court try to stop him? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Election Day 1936, the climax of a bitter campaign. November 3rd, 1936, several months after the Supreme Court has struck down that minimum wage law in yet another blow to the New Deal. Now, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is up for re-election. And he's got a decent chance of winning, largely because of his strenuous efforts to dig the country out of the Great Depression. 
Those efforts are also known as the New Deal. Now, polls in 1936 are not what they are today. So Roosevelt's got a good shot, but it is really not clear who is going to win the presidency. And then on election night. The result is a Roosevelt victory of amazing proportions. FDR doesn't just win. He wins in a landslide with 98% of the electoral college votes. Breaking election records that have stood for more than a century. The public has spoken, and the message is clear. We like FDR, and we like the New Deal. They also elect a ton of FDR supporters to Congress. But when the president enters the White House for a second term, he is still facing an enormous and, to him, very irritating obstacle. The Supreme Court. They keep effectively vetoing his programs, picking them off one by one. There are four justices on the right who are viewed as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Laura Kalman is a professor of history at UC Santa Barbara. It's sort of widely accepted that they are out to kill the New Deal. The four horsemen are good at convincing just one other justice to support their rulings. This is how they've been blocking whatever FDR wants to do. And during his first term, not one of them has died or retired, even though six of the nine justices are over the age of 70. They're still there, serving out their lifetime appointments and standing firmly in FDR's way. He knows it. He's acutely aware that things like Social Security and the National Labor Relations Act are going to come before the court, and he's worried about what will happen to them. So now the stage is set for him to do something about the Supreme Court. To do something. Should we talk about some of his options? Option one, be patient. He could have waited until one or more justice retired or died. But FDR genuinely believed that these elderly justices were staying on the court to thwart him. He's like, they're not just going to retire if I sit here and do nothing. But then there is option two, sweeten the deal. Make stepping down seem like a really nice option. Offer a better retirement plan. There's some evidence that two of the justices FDR recognized as his nemeses wanted to retire, but were worried that Congress would cut their pensions. Reasonable. A few years before, Congress had cut a justice's pension. So maybe making retirement easier would convince a couple of justices that it was time to go. But A, Congress had not enacted a retirement bill in 1935 when it was proposed. And B, remember, FDR thought those justices were staying on the court to make its life miserable. So then there's option three, a constitutional amendment. FDR could try to reform the court by putting term limits on justices or giving Congress the power to override the court's decisions. But... FDR understood that a constitutional amendment would take too long to enact. 
it's really hard to pass a constitutional amendment. FDR doesn't have that kind of time. And even if he were somehow able to do it, the justices could just find it unconstitutional. And then FDR would be back at square one. So that brings us to option four. Wait and see whether the election returns affect the court. Maybe, given FDR's huge win and his party's dominance in Congress, the justices will be like, okay, fine, we'll let you enact your laws. And immediately following FDR's victory, there is some evidence that this could happen. In December of 1936, after the election, the New Deal lawyers noted that the court was no longer treating them as thieving schoolboys, but treating them more politely. FDR is inaugurated in January of 1937. Now he has the chance to choose among these four options. And he chooses none of them. He goes with a surprise pick, option five. In a meeting with his attorney general that lasted for about two hours, it was broken up only by FDR's son, James, bringing them tea and toast. They decided to go ahead with proposing the addition of up to six new justices. Up to six new justices. It will become known as packing the court. Under this plan, instead of nine black-robed figures hearing the nation's most important legal cases, there would be up to 15. A significant change. The number of justices had been nine since the late 1860s, had been nine for a very long time. Michael Nelson is a political science professor at Rhodes College. He told us the idea that the court had nine justices had been enshrined in marble just a year before. We tend to assume the Supreme Court building that's there now has always been there, when in truth it didn't open until October of 1935, during FDR's first term in office. And when they built the courtroom and constructed the bench where the justices sit, they built it for nine chairs. And so that shows you how deeply embedded the understanding that nine is the number but nine didn't have to be the number. The Constitution empowers Congress to set the size of the court. And over the course of the court's first 80 years, Congress had changed up the number of justices six times. So it had been done before. And so FDR's view was uh, Congress can just pass a bill, simple majority of the House, simple majority of the Senate, I'll sign it. And therefore the court will expand. He decides, I'm the president, I am going to make that happen. Without letting anybody know it was coming, outside of very few of his advisors in the White House, on February 5th, FDR summons congressional leaders and his cabinet and tells them, this is what I'm doing. It is a bombshell. And he didn't really give people a lot of time to get used to it. Roosevelt did not do what had worked so well for him during the first term. And that is really consult Congress, at least informally, consult the public, float ideas before introducing those ideas and get some sort of buy-in, at least in general terms, in advance. He didn't do that when he finally sprung his own idea for packing the court. Here's how he explains it in that meeting on February 5th. 
He says he's concerned that the aged or infirm justices are falling behind on their work. His solution is an infusion of new blood in the courts. For every justice over age 70 and a half, he says, I will appoint one additional justice. And then without really pausing for questions or discussion, he meets with the press. And what he's saying is the purpose of this bill in expanding the size of the Supreme Court is to provide helpers for the current justices, some of whom are old and could use six new justices to help them do their work. This was so transparently not FDR's motive in introducing this bill. And he's sort of winking and smirking to the reporters like, see how clever I'm being? That's the way it's reported in the press. He's talking with mock gravity about how the court is behind in its work. And the lack of transparency galls everyone from the beginning. Laura Kalman told us the press sees right through him. They're like, Obviously, you're doing this to save the New Deal. Members of Congress can see this, too. And they're not happy. FDR is caught off guard by just how intensely people oppose this plan. Even people in his own party. He is accused by fellow Democrats of being disingenuous, of engaging in political trickery, creating a dangerous precedent, disrespecting the elderly, jeopardizing judicial independence, and trying to appoint rubber stamps to the court. That's a lot of objections. And there are more. Like, this breaks tradition, and it gives the president too much power. In short, this plan is not going over well. But FDR decides... You know, it's not the plan itself that's the problem. It's this kind of winking way I've been talking about it. The way he had presented the plan had been a mistake. He had to be frank. And so on March 4th, a month after he's proposed the plan, he delivers a fireside chat. One of his famous radio addresses, which he had used in the past to speak plainly and gain the public's trust. My friends. He compares the executive and legislative and judicial branches to three horses that are plowing the furrow for the American people. Two of the horses... The Congress and the executive are pulling in unison today. The third is not. And they have to work together, FDR says, or nothing's going to happen. This plan of mine is no attack on the court. It seeks to restore the court to its rightful and historic place in our system of constitutional government. He says, as one friend to another, you who know me, will realize that the last thing he wants to do is endanger democracy. He's trying to make democracy work more smoothly. This time, FDR is persuasive. The public starts warming to his plan. It's clear that the fireside chat has been important. FDR is moving the needle towards him. This was a time when if a president made a national speech on radio, 
a large, large percentage of the nation heard it. But Michael Nelson said, the public is one thing. Congress is quite another, let alone the justices themselves. They begin to fight back. The Chief Justice, Charles Evans Hughes, sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee and basically said, here's the data. We're totally up to date on our work. And for that matter, more justices would just make our jobs more complicated and take longer, more people to consult, longer discussions and so on. The court is not going to take this lying down. But then the justices start putting out a new kind of message. In the spring of 1937, the court begins to announce its most recent decisions. And, Laura Kalman says, they start ruling in FDR's favor. So the court is beginning to shift, and then comes the coup de grace when Vandevander, one of the conservatives, resigns. Justice Willis Vandevander, one of those four horsemen, the block that has gone out of its way to shut down the New Deal. He says, I want to spend more time on the family farm in Maryland. I'm going to leave the court. So now what FDR's got is a court that's becoming more pro-administration, and he has a vacancy on the court. And once he fills that vacancy, he could have a majority of justices who see things his way. So, game over? A lot of people assume that now FDR will drop his very controversial plan. Why run for the train when he's already caught it? Why not just declare victory and withdraw? Yeah, that's not FDR's style. Backing down is not going to happen. 1937. The Supreme Court has surprised everyone by starting to rule in favor of the New Deal. But anyone who understands FDR knows that does not mean he is going to give up. So the Senate Judiciary Committee issues a harsh condemnation of the plan, just to make sure. And that is the moment when FDR decides to have a party. He issues an invitation to 400 Democrats in Congress to join him for a weekend in the Chesapeake Bay. On Jefferson Island, an exclusive retreat off the coast of Annapolis. No women are invited because they will spoil the bonhomie, you know. And these congressmen arrived not knowing what FDR is going to do. Is he going to lecture them? Has he invited them out to this Democratic fishing and hunting club to 
tell them they'd better shape up or he would not support them in their campaigns for re-election. No. It turns out that FDR has arranged a giant party for them. The president arrives early to welcome each group of congressmen as they step off the ferry. He sits in a chair under an apple tree, trading stories and jokes. They drink highballs and beer. They eat ham and potato salad, crabs from the Chesapeake. They sing songs like the old GOP, she ain't what she used to be. FDR is using this party to round up the votes he needs to change the court. Softening up his fellow Democrats with highballs on an island, it's all part of the plan. And it works. They begin to feel a little ashamed of themselves. They're like, look at him over there sitting under the apple tree. He's a great guy. And he's very popular with the voters. Maybe we should be supporting him more. After all, his success is our success. So this enables the Senate Majority Leader, Joseph Robinson, to put together a compromise bill. Instead of giving FDR the power to immediately appoint a new justice for each one over age 70 and a half, this bill says the president gets to appoint one new justice each calendar year for every justice over 75. It is now up to Majority Leader Joseph Robinson to get that bill passed in the Senate. He's known to be well-connected, good at arm-twisting. And so Robinson is going around town lining up friends. He's saying, you don't like this, but do this for me. I've got the power and the claims of friendship for you to vote my way. The Senate begins to debate the bill in July of 1937. Should we alter a whole branch of government to please the president? There is still a lot of opposition. They go back and forth and back and forth in the Senate chambers. It's very hot. It's one of those horrible Washington heat waves, you know, where it's 82 degrees at midnight. And that horrible humidity that we all hate so much. Robinson knows that no one is happy to be there, and he hopes that will push the bill through. What Robinson doesn't figure out, he's been sick all winter, and what he doesn't realize is that the heat's going to get him. Which it does. On July 14th, his housekeeper finds him dead on his bed. Dead of a heart attack, doctors say. But a New York Times headline says what everyone's thinking. End is attributed to strain of piloting court bill against revolt in the Senate. And the momentum has collapsed for the time being. At that moment, the whole effort died of its own weight. Michael Nelson again. Senators were mad at the president for putting them in this position. They were mad at the president for, in their view, driving Joe Robinson to work himself to death on his behalf. And uh, the court packing bill dies in the Senate. Even then, the president does not give up. There are last-ditch negotiations on Robinson's funeral train. But they fail. 
And yet, despite it all, Roosevelt does get the most important thing. The court continues to be much friendlier to his New Deal reform. That's an enormous shift. Now, we can debate whether it's caused by the threat of court packing, scaring the justices into line, or their acknowledgement of his 1936 electoral victory. But after 1937, the court upholds legislation and essentially constitutionalizes the welfare state. Plus, presidential term limits don't yet exist. And FDR ends up being president for more than 12 years. Father time does FDR's job for him. You know, by 1944, he's had eight vacancies on the Supreme Court due to death or retirement. So FDR does fill the court with his supporters. He just does it the old-fashioned way, with patience, politics, and a little luck. But as FDR knew, the old-fashioned way is not the only way. His court-packing plan failed, which showed that even a president fresh off a historically huge victory, even he can push his luck too far. And yet, changing the size of the court is constitutional, if you can get Congress to go along. Which means another ambitious president could someday try again. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Get in touch. We love hearing from you. Special thanks to our guests, Laura Kalman, professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of FDR's Gambit, The Court Packing Fight and the Rise of Legal Liberalism, and Michael Nelson, political science professor at Rhodes College and author of Vaulting Ambition, FDR's campaign to pack the Supreme Court. Thanks also to Claire Cushman, resident historian at the Supreme Court Historical Society. You can find a great video explaining the court packing scheme on their website, supremecourthistory.org. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Dan Rosato. History This Week is also produced by Corinne Wallace, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.